Now let me read to you from Matthew chapter 5. In looking at the second part of Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus talks about the internalizing, is the word I'm using, it may be a word I've invented, internalizing of righteousness. You have heard, he said, through the law, you shall not murder. But all the law can ever do is touch you externally. I send you if you're angry with your brother and you're guilty. And that is the area I've come to produce righteousness. He says a righteousness that surpasses other scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees were very good at the external laws. But knew little if not nothing of the internal righteousness that Jesus Christ comes to produce. You've heard it said you must not commit adultery. I said if you look at a woman lust after her. Even though you do not know her, you're already guilty. It's the internal attitude of heart. And he talks six times about that. You've heard it said, but I said to you. We've looked at those six things. But now I want to go back to an earlier section, which I did not read and talk about before, but which I think is appropriate to talk about in verse 13 to verse 16, where Jesus uses two metaphors that he says, you are these two things. The metaphors of salt and light. Let me read them to you, verse 13 to verse 16. This follows the section we call the Beatitudes, the eight Beatitudes. And then we've looked at these six statements that internalize the righteousness of Christ in our own experience. And then I think as a summing up to all of that, let me read you these verses. Matthew 5 verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. Now Jesus uses these two metaphors to describe what a Christian is. He doesn't he says you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. He does not say you have the salt or you carry the salt or you must do salty things or you must act like salt. He is not giving to his disciples a to-do list of things they ought to do. He is saying This is what you are if you are a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And interestingly, both of those metaphors tell us as much about the environment in which they function as well as about the the person themselves who says you are the salt and light. For this reason, light only has meaning in an environment of darkness. To be the light of the world is by implication you're in an environment of darkness. To be the salt of the earth by implication it's only significant in an environment of decay. Let me explain that. You see in Jesus' day salt was not something which sat in shiny salt shakers on the dinner table. Of course they may well have used it in that way. But when these fishermen, some of whom were disciples of Jesus, 
caught their fish and took them to the market. Before they could take them away to the market, they had to salt them down and then pack them between layers of salt in order to keep them fresh because salt arrests corruption and decay. Salt is not antiseptic. The end of the first service this morning, a lady came to me and said that she grew up in a fishing village in Nigeria. She said, that's exactly what they used to do when the fishermen came in. They'd have piles of salt to just salt the fish down to keep it fresh. When I lived in Africa as a young man, I was one of the very privileged few uh, to have refrigeration, but most people didn't. And unless meat was going to be eaten the day it was slaughtered, it had to be salted. And... uh, Zimbabwe is a landlocked nation, no natural lakes, and so whenever fish arrived, it, it, it came as, as hard as wood because it was so thick with salt to preserve it. That is the context in which salt was familiar to the listeners of Jesus. And as an antiseptic, as a means of arresting corruption and decay. He is saying in the context of decay and and darkness, this is your influence. You are salt that arrests that decay and light that banishes the darkness. We all have influence, you know. I saw a Peanuts cartoon on one occasion. I've seen it more than once, but it was a good one. Where, where Peppermint Patty is talking to Charlie Brown. She says, Charlie Brown, it was the first day back at school and I got called to the principal's office and it was your fault, Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown says, where was it my fault? Why is everything my fault? What's it got to do with me? And she said, you're my friend, aren't you? You should have been a better influence on me. Well, that's a very convenient cop-out for Peppermint Patty, but actually, you know, there's some truth in that. I wonder if the world could say to the church, you know, we're in a mess, and, and you Christians actually aren't helping us very much. You should be a better influence. Having said that, I actually believe that the world and the church does not realize what influence the Christian church actually does have in our world. But we are the salt of the earth, said Jesus. It's not something you do. This is who you are. You are the light of the world. Let me talk about these two. Let me talk about the salt of the earth first of all, and we'll have less time to talk about the light of the world. So don't think it's halfway through when we get there, because we'll be near the end, but we won't have time. But let's be utterly realistic. The world is in a state of decay. It has been ever since the fall. In the book of Genesis, when the fall took place, the immediate response was fear and shame. The firstborn son of Adam and Eve grew up to become a murderer of his own brother. By Genesis chapter 6 and verse 6 you have this awful statement. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. God then brought judgment to the world and saved just a handful of eight people in the ark. And right from the very early pages of scripture, the portrayal of our world is, it is in a state of decay. 
And if we do not believe that about our world, we'll have a very naive view of the world and society. The Bible describes this process of decay as being in a state of perishing. That's a biblical word. You know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, the scripture is very clear that perishing is not simply a future state, though it has future implications, of course. Perishing is a present state. Let me read you a couple of verses. 1 Corinthians 1.18. Paul says the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Present tense. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 15. We are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Present tense. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 3. If our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Present continuous state. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 9. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan. Displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders. And every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth. And so to be saved. Perishing is a process. Rubber perishes. When I was a boy... In the winter, we used to go to bed with a water bottle. Do you know what water bottles are? I don't, I don't know, but little rubber bags of water. You'd cuddle, keep you warm at night, warm the bed up. I went to bed one night with a water bottle. That was not unusual, but I woke up in the night soaking wet, and I was very relieved to discover it was my water bottle. It had perished. It was in a process of perishing as rubber does perish until one day it burst. There is a process of perishing going on in our world and in the lives of the people who make up our world. It will one day burst. But you and I are implanted in an environment that is perishing. You see, we're not static. The world is not static. Now, the big question is, how do we as Christians respond to the decaying, perishing world of which we are a part? And I want to suggest there are two errors that Christian people can make about this. One error is to isolate ourselves from the perishing world. That is, to build walls of protection around us to keep ourselves away from the world and keep ourselves away from non-believers. This was part, not solely, but this is partly what lay behind the monastic movement where people shut themselves away to just be with God, but to be detached from the world at large. We don't take it that far, but you know, there's a great temptation sometimes to try and build walls that protect us from the influence of the world. Now, we must be protected and build walls against worldliness, and worldliness is defined for us in First John as pride, lust, and greed. We must recognize that as something to be protected from but that's an internal thing in our own lives but but to protect ourselves from the people of the world the answer is no that is not our mission often we do we try to escape from the world around us we try to escape from the institutions of the world around us and isolate ourselves and then of course we criticize the world well of course we've allowed it to deteriorate by our very non-involvement with it 
and we deliberately reduce our influence in the world. That is one error people can make to, to isolate ourselves. The other error people make is to integrate. That is, we become like everybody else. And so we become indistinguishable. We cease to be like an antiseptic that helps halt the processes of decay. And so we adopt the business ethics of our environment, which may happen to be corrupt, which may happen to include a little bit of untruth, a little bit of exaggeration, a little bit of distortion, because that's the culture we're part of, and we're not different in that. And we adopt the sexual ethics of the world around us, so we do not stand out as different in that area. And actually, these verses that Jesus speaks here speak against this very thing. Do you know, if we're not different, we're not being Christian. You are the salt. But, as we'll see in a moment, if the salt loses its saltiness, it's no good for anything. But that is not what a disciple of Jesus, you are the salt, you are the light. If you have the light under a bucket, he says you can do that. But you cease to function. So if it's an error to isolate ourselves on the one hand and to integrate ourselves on the other hand, what is the right way forward? I suggest you it is to infiltrate. That's what salt does. In our perishing world, God sprinkles salt. And this is what Jesus prayed for his disciples. He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world. I'm not praying for isolation. I'm not praying for a, a sort of Christian stream that somehow permeates through society, but is detached from society and protected from society. I'm not praying you'll take them out of the world, said Jesus, but that you protect them from the evil one. Why? Because they're exposed to the evil one. That's my prayer, that you, you will protect them from the evil one. And then he said this in verse 18, As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So my prayer is not that you take them out of it. My prayer is actually that we send them into it, that we infiltrate now I know that can be dangerous, and of course it can be dangerous. And those of us who are parents know fine well that's dangerous. But, but let me say this as a parent. Don't protect your kids too much. Teach them instead how to live in the world that is corrupt, that does bombard them with things which are not true. That in that environment, as they themselves come to know Christ... Their influence will be a constructive one and a positive one. Now, how are we to be influential like this? I mean, how does the salt actually function? And there the are two ways that, again, I think that we can interpret this verse. Some interpret this corporately. That is, that, okay, you as Christians organize and campaign for a better world. Expose those things that are wrong, criticize things that need criticizing. And there's no shortage of Christians who are willing to do that and lobby against those things which are, which are wrong. I'm not commenting if that's right, wrong, good, bad. But I do have two scriptural reservations, if that is our only understanding of this. And the two scriptural reservations, personal reservations don't count. Scripture reservations do. The two scripture reservations are, are, firstly, we don't find this in the New Testament. You don't find the Apostle Paul or Peter or Jesus himself commenting on the corrupt government of the Roman Empire or the corrupt Judean government of the Herods. 
You don't find the early church sending up resolutions to the imperial court in Rome saying this is the Christian stance and we have our rights. We want you to take these into account. You don't find them organizing petitions or political campaigns. Now it is true that the Old Testament prophets addressed national issues but that is precisely because Israel as a nation was the chosen people of God in the Old Covenant. And so his work was through the nation and therefore his agenda was nationally based and therefore the prophets got up and said don't align yourself with Egypt and don't depend on Assyria because you depend on God in the national context. But in the new covenant the kingdom of God does not have geographical boundaries, it's not a nation. The kingdom of God will not be observed said Jesus in Luke 17 when people say here it is or there it is. It doesn't have boundaries, doesn't have, you don't need visas to get in or out. The kingdom of God is within you. But you do not find in the New Testament that this is the area, and I'll give you a better reason in a moment, why in the New Testament this is not the area in which the church functioned as salt. My second reservation is that the church's primary contribution to our world, we must never lose this, the church's primary contribution to the world is the preaching of the gospel to the world. You see, there's only one alternative to perishing, and that is what the Bible calls eternal life. They're set in contrast again and again. John 3.16, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Once again, eternal life is not a future thing. John 5 24 says, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, present tense, and will not be condemned. He has, present tense, crossed from death to life. That the only alternative to the state of perishing is replacing that with eternal life, which is the life of God. God alone is eternal. His life implanted within a human being that halts that process of perishing and replaces it with the process of living a life that grows increasingly in righteousness and godliness and fruitfulness. And sometimes, if that is our primary function, sometimes our getting onto bandwagons that may have some legitimacy actually become barriers to the primary task. I remember two or three Christmases ago now, I was at a mall I I go every Christmas to a mall because I have to shop. (laughs) And there was a display uh, concerning the impact of HIV AIDS and some young men collecting money, giving away literature. And I gave one of these young men some money and I took his literature and I began to talk to him and I, I said, I, I too am very concerned about the, the huge impact of HIV AIDS. In fact, I'm involved in helping send people to places, particularly in Africa, where this has had such a huge impact and in raising money. And this young man was very warm and very pleased that somebody should be concerned and interested. And he said to me, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. Not only did his face change, 
because he turned his body away from me, began to walk away with his back to me, and when I spoke to him, he gestured. The moment I told him I was a pastor, the moment he understood I'm a Christian, he was probably a gay young man. His idea is, all I know of Christians is rejection and condemnation. You see, Jesus had a reputation. It was this. He was a friend of sinners. His reputation was not. He was an expose of sin. It is true Jesus exposed the religious hypocrisy of those who should have known better. And he talked a lot about spiritual superficiality. External preoccupation rather than internal godliness. That's where he brought his expose of sin. But he didn't rant and rail against the evils of society. And he tells us why in John 12, 47. In case we don't know why he didn't do this. This is why he didn't do it. John 12, 47. As for the person who hears my word but does not keep them... I do not judge him. As for the person who turns their back on me and does not do the words that they hear from me, I don't judge him. And he tells us why. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. And by implication... Judging it may not be conducive to saving it because your judging of it can build such barriers in advance. We don't get through. I don't think the church of Jesus Christ has the reputation of Jesus Christ. I don't think the church of Jesus Christ has the reputation, wow, these are the friends of sinners. And being salt is being willing to swallow the fact that the couple who live next door to you may not be married and you think, you know, that's not right. Or they may be gay, that's not right. Or somebody in the workplace is living in a way that is wrong because your purpose is to love them and win them as Jesus did. Of course, there are things that are right and things that are wrong. And of course, God is going to judge the world As Romans 2.16 says, there will come a day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ. As always, of course, God goes beyond the externals. We can judge what we see on the external, but he's going to go right beyond that to the secrets as well. There's going to come a judgment day. Yes, there is. Sin is going to be reckoned with. But as I understand scripture, being salt is not having campaigns against people who Do not obey the words of Jesus. Because Jesus himself said, I don't judge people like that. Because that is why I came. I came to save them. So there's that corporate sense. I don't think that's what Jesus means here. Rather he's saying, individually, you are the salt of the earth. You, Peter, you, Mary, you, James, you, Martha, you, George, you, Sally, 
Forget about everybody else. Forget whether you're part of some mass movement. You are the salt of the earth. That actually is the context of Matthew 5. When Jesus talks about instead of murder, it's anger. That's not a corporate thing. You can say as a society, murder is wrong and we will punish murder. You can do that as a society, but you cannot do that about anger. This is all internal. This is, this is an individual thing. This is something you have to deal with in your heart. Adultery, you can make laws about. It's a ground for divorce. You cannot legislate about lust. That is something that goes on in the heart of an individual and it's in the heart alone that you can deal with it. I can't help you with your lust problem. Only you alone before God. You see, the whole context of Matthew 5, although we are together as a church, that's a different message, a different truth, an important truth. But this here is talking about you individually. You see, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It's about the kind of husband you are or I am. I hesitate saying this. My wife's on the front row. I'm more like pepper than salt sometimes, I'm afraid. Stings a bit. The kind of parent you are. The kind of person you are at work. You are the salt, says Jesus. You're the salt. I have no other strategy in your workplace except putting you there. You are the light. It may be dark. Just shine. That's what you've got to do. Your salt, just be there. Just be there. Salt doesn't land on the meat and say, what do I do now? Just, just be there. And the salt has its effect. Like grains of salt in a putrid environment, we have our influence. And we do have influence. You know, 18th century Britain, historians tell us, was saved from the equivalent of the French Revolution by the fact that thousands upon thousands had been converted to Jesus Christ through what is called the Great Evangelical Awakening, through the preaching of men like John Wesley, George Woodfield and others in the 18th century. It wasn't that they organized any kind of political movement. They didn't. It wasn't that they tried to impact legislation. They simply saw men and women, boys and girls, changed. And the impact on the society was marked. After the Welsh revival of 1904, which sadly did not have a long-term impact on that nation, but had an immediate impact that was significant in all kinds of ways, crime decreased significantly. You know, they say that the pit ponies in the mines did not understand the instructions given them by their masters because they used to curse and swear and when they spoke politely the pit ponies didn't know what they were talking about. They didn't know how to respond. In fact, every great spiritual revival, real spiritual revival, has always has its social impact not because it was organized, that was an agenda. It was simply because people were changed. I could tell you about two elderly ladies in their mid-80s. Used to go down to the center of their town on a Friday night. 
because young people would pour out of the clubs and the pubs and these two ladies had a burden for those young people in their 80s and they would go down there and they spent Friday night after Friday night, week after week, month after month. Some of those kids were on drugs. Some of those kids were, were drunk. Some of those kids were abusive. But they would talk to them. They would write down their names. They could pray for them. One of them was an aunt of mine. She'd been a missionary for 50 years in Africa. And when she died and I conducted her funeral, her friend who was there gave me a letter in which she had told me about what my aunt used to do with her. People didn't know they were doing this. And she told how that after weeks and weeks, some of these young people began to soften and some would begin to seek them out. One young person, I quote from her letter, which I just read a few days ago, found it a few days ago. She said, you wouldn't be here unless this was important. The only link possibly between Jesus and those young people, these two women in their mid-80s, who weren't doing an outreach on a Friday night. They were just being solved, just being Christians. In a putrid, decaying perishing environment that they recognized. Let's go down and be solved. Serve the Lord Jesus. You see, as I said earlier, the commands of the old covenant here in Matthew 5 become the promises of the new covenant. Whereas it used to be, you shall not steal. It was a command. It becomes you shall not steal. It's a promise because the spirit of God in you fulfills the law. So this is not a command. Hey, go and be salt. Hey, go and be light. Now, this is a promise. You. You're the salt. You are the salt of the earth. This is what is going to happen. You are going to have influence. And if you like, the default position of the Christian is, wherever you're placed, you are having influence, whether you recognize it or not. We don't have to recognize the influence that we're having. Just be who you are, and there will be influence. For good or for bad. A mother was taking her little boy to school one day. Normally the father took him to school, but um, the father had to be out of town, and so the mother took him to school. And as they were walking to the school, the, the little boy kept looking around. His mum said, what are you looking for? He said, uh, why aren't there any idiots here this morning? She said, what do you mean? He said, well, when I come with dad, we always see at least three or four idiots. <laughs> that father didn't know he was having a very negative influence on his son. You have influence. Had about another mother who took a little boy to the supermarket and they spent an hour or so picking up stuff and as they were leaving, the lady at the checkout gave the little boy a lollipop. And his mother said, what do you say? The little boy said, put it on my credit card. <laughs> his mother had influence, you see. That's, all, that's, all he, that's what you say when you take something. Sorry for that light-hearted moment, but this is serious business, you see. And here's the problem in verse 13. Although this is, this is a promise, you are the salt of the earth, but... I have a marking system in my Bible, and I have one color for the little word but, and link words, and words that change everything. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out and trampled by men, he says there in verse 13. 
Now, now technically, salt cannot lose its saltiness because sodium chloride is a stable compound. But the salt where Jesus lived was normally collected from around the Dead Sea, the lowest place on earth, where all kinds of crystals and minerals get swept down there, including salt. And the real salt was often mixed and contaminated by these other minerals and crystals. And the rain, because salt is soluble, the rain might wash it away until what is left is only the impurities. And so then what they considered salt has lost its saltiness. It was good for nothing except, said Jesus, to be thrown out and trampled by men. And there's probably little that this world despises more than people who claim quality of life but do not live it. Mahatma Gandhi, the father of modern India, was asked by some missionaries, what is the greatest hindrance to Christianity in India? Mahatma Gandhi said, Christians. I'm delighted to say that 60 years later, I think the reverse is true now. What's the greatest asset to the Christian church in India? It's actually Christians. We're shining as lights. Philip Keller, a writer some of you are familiar with, wrote an article called Salt for Society. I quote part of it. He says, either our lives are counting for good and for God or... They are making an impact for evil and the enemy. The way we live, the things we say, the attitudes we entertain, the lifestyle we adopt are continuously producing either positive or negative results in society. Our lives, whether we are aware of it or not, either count for God or against God. There simply is no middle Ground, says Philip Keller. Are you functioning? Or are you fooling around? Is your environment different because you're there? Or are we simply fooling around? That's the challenge that Jesus gives here. You are the salt. But if you lose the savor, you're good for nothing. You're fooling around. And very quickly and very briefly, only for a minute or so, then you are the light of the world. And I find this intriguing because twice elsewhere in the New Testament, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But he qualified it in John 8. He said, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. But now he says to these disciples, You are the light of the world. That what I am in the world, while I am in the world, you are to be in the world when I'm no longer in the world. But if Jesus was the light of the world, what was the light? Well, John 1 verse 4 tells us. John 1 verse 4 says of Jesus, in him was life, that is spiritual life, the life of God. In him was life and the life was the light of men. What was the light of the world in Jesus? It was the life of his father within him. What is the life? What is the light of the world in us? It is the life of God within us. The shines through us. You see, 
We are no more light in ourselves than a light bulb is light in itself. I could hold up a light bulb here that is perfectly made. Nothing wrong with it, but it'll never produce light in itself. It won't produce light any more than a boiled egg would produce light. It will only produce light as it is connected to the electricity supply. Then it'll produce light. You and I in ourselves are not intrinsically the light any more than Jesus was. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. It's the life of God operating in us. That's why, as I pointed out before, there are two alternatives. There's the position of perishing or the position of living eternal life. The eternal life is divine life. It's God indwelling us. That's why in verse 16, Jesus said in the same way, let your light shine before men. They may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Well, if they see your good deeds, why not praise you? Because, you see, if you're the light of the world and you let your light shine before men, they will see your good deeds, but they recognize this is not the light bulb doing its trick, doing its thing. This is the light bulb connected to an electrical source. This is God at work in you. They'll praise your Father who's in heaven. And that's why the true evidence of spiritual life is not that people get excited about you. They actually forget about you. Because what is grabbing their attention is God himself at work in and through you. And so said the Lord Jesus to these people. He described in the Beatitudes in the first part of Matthew 5. And then he describes in the second part who have a righteousness that is internalized. One where Christ within us fulfills the law. And deals with the anger and the lust and the lack of truthfulness and integrity and, and, and the failure to love our enemies, etc. All those things that he talks about here. He says of these people, I want you to know, you disciples, you are the salt of the earth. And yes, it's a perishing world. And yes, we don't like to be amongst the maggots. But you know, that's where salt needs to be. You're the salt. Be the antiseptic that you are. Have the influence that you will have. And you are the light in an environment of darkness. There are people who will just see you at work. Who will just see you maybe on your street. And they're lost and they're confused. But they see in you that you somehow seem to know the way home. And by the light that shines in you. You'll have the privilege of leading them home. As you let your light shine before men. Don't look over your shoulder and try to measure it. Don't keep a record of how brightly you're shining or how salty you're being. Just be a Christian. That's what this is. This is just being a Christian. That is stripped of all that superficiality, all that external stuff. He talks more in Matthew 6 about doing things before men to be seen by men. None of that. But alone in secret before God. What you are before God is what you'll be in the world. What you really are is what you really are alone before God. You fooling around? Or is actually your world and your environment better because you're there? If you're in a tough situation at work, don't leave it because it's tough. That may be the very place you're supposed to be. If your home is tough, don't don't walk out. That's the very place the antiseptic needs to function. If your marriage is difficult, be the antiseptic it needs. Say, Lord Jesus, 
as you live in me and work in me and work through me. How many be salt that does not lose its saltiness? Actually makes a difference. That's the joy of the Christian life. Let's pray and ask God to make this real in our own lives and experience. Father, we thank you that you have incredibly privileged us by investing in us your only means of reaching our world. You have chosen to work by the Holy Spirit through your people. That we in a dark world may be lights. In a decaying septic world we might be the antiseptic, the preservative. And I pray, Lord Jesus, as each of us lives this week at home, at work, maybe on vacation, in our streets, help us, we pray, to be what you redeemed us to become, salt and light that makes other people better because of us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.